0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And purchase one or 20 of my courses there. And, of course, that keeps this podcast free of charge. You also get great content when you purchase the courses. So it's a win-win. You get a free podcast and you get great content that you purchase. You can also click on that support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also... Uh, purchase one of my book plates if you want an autograph of one of my books. Another great way to support the show is to buy my books, and you can get those wherever books are sold online. And, of course, my latest two are The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings, both great books. You can also support the show by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. But the best way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. So wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you're subscribing to it, make sure you're rating it, make sure you're reviewing it, and sharing it around on social media. So, that's a great way to support the show, and also send me those show requests. If you want to hear something, if you have a topic you think would make a great show, now remember, it has to be something that you think would be appealing to a wide audience, and not just that, I can talk about it for about 20 to 30 minutes. So, you gotta you gotta think about that in the context of what you're what you're asking me to do. So send me those show requests. I may not respond to them. I do read them all, and I do appreciate your input and help in keeping this show going. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. And this is something that people did send me a couple of times. Uh, it's a ongoing debate about the meaning of modern conservatism, and this is a piece of the New Criterion by Josh Hammer, who is. Uh, the opinion editor at Newsweek, and he's also part of the Edmund Burke uh, Foundation, I believe, is, is um, where, where he's um, uh, part of the uh, a research fellow there. Uh, now, that particular organization and Hammer in, partic- in, in general, I mean, th- these two people, and then uh, uh, Hazoni, who was uh, another, uh, the founder, I think, of the Edmund Burke Foundation, These two individuals are nationalists. And I want to talk about this week a couple of articles, this one and another one, about this idea of what is originalism. What does that actually mean? I think this is important. And then how does that fit with with, um, nationalism? I would say that this entire piece misses the point. Now, he's critical of an essay by Kim Holmes, who wrote an essay entitled Common Good Conservatism, A Debate. So that was the basis of where Hammer approaches this particular essay. And what he's trying to do here is establish a foundation for uh, what might be called national populism, but he's calling it uh, uh, originalism. Common good originalism is what he's calling it. Again, I think that he doesn't even understand what originalism is. And that's that's the main problem I have here. He could just say he's a nationalist. And as a nationalist, he's a a quote-unquote common good nationalist. But what he's really trying to do here is take down libertarians. Because he thinks libertarians are a real problem in, uh, in modern American political discourse. Also, enlightened liberals. So those that would be um, uh, someone that would simply echo John Locke or say that John Locke is the basis of everything. It, you can find that quite a bit in the Hillsdale College, Straussian, Claremont, all of that stuff. So in some ways, Josh Hammer is taking aim at some of those people, someone like Michael Anton, who would be, he would say he's kind of a national good, or a common good originalist, uh, though on the other hand, he is in line with Locke and liberalism. I mean, so... This is where all the Straussians are confused. Hammer is not really a Straussian. Uh, he again is someone who's more of like a, um, like I said, a, a, a conservative populist, but a nationalist populist. Uh, it's there's a lot of a lot of layers to this. So let me get into this essay and explain where I think that uh, I, Josh Hammer is right. And also, Josh Hammer is wrong in missing what originalism really means. So he says, Many of the Heritage Foundation's erstwhile most promising intellects have notably departed Conservatism Inc.'s flagship think tank over the past few years. Now, note at the beginning he uses Conservatism Inc. Now, this is important because uh, Conservatism Inc., I mean, you you get uh, the... Right, on the right, you have people that are very critical of mainstream conservatism, and Josh Hammer is one of those people, and I think this is where he's right. Deservedly so, people are critical of mainstream conservatism. Kim R. Holmes' essay provides a clue as to why. Holmes is yesterday's man, dutifully reciting yesterday's talking points in defense of yesterday's conservatism. Holmes' is neoliberal-inspired fusionist conservatism, forged out of the fires of the early post-war period was perhaps sufficient at the time President Ronald Reagan surmised quote, the most terrifying words in the English language to be, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But the right's preeminent foe is no longer big government run amok. Now it is the metastasis of woke ideology, practiced on high by an arrogant ruling class oligarchy chomping at the bit to subjugate the deplorables. The spread of woke's ideology and the ruling class oligarchy for which that ideology is a conduit, in turn, is abetted by the rise of a new socio-corporate private sector tyranny adept at wielding and weaponizing the most sophisticated communications networks ever known to man. Now, all of this is true. All of that is true. He's talking about fusionist conservatism. Uh, If you want to read a good book, go out and get Nash's book on the conservative intellectual movement since 1945. And he does bring up where all of this stuff gets put together. We have the end of World War II. Now we have the Cold War, and all of these different groups are trying to figure out how to create a conservative opposition to the left. And so you have a fusion of libertarians and old conservatives who were you know much more interested in government intervention. And all these people are thinking about John Locke and other things. So you have this idea, this, this soft interpretation of the American founding. All that comes into play here. And what, what uh, Hammer is saying is that all of that is lost. It's gone. It doesn't work anymore. Big government's not the problem. What the problem is, is the left and woke ideology and a ruling class, an elite, that are insistent on forcing that ideology down everyone's throat. And part of it is big tech. So we have big tech working with uh, these woke overlords in the oligarchy, and that's what's changing America. Now, in many ways, he's correct. But what is also helping that along is, of course, big government. The problem with this common good originalism is not really originalist at all. It it doesn't have anything to do with originalism. Now, he would say it does, and I'll I'll get into where he's entirely wrong in that. Common good originalism in particular merits defense against Holmes' attacks. The particular conservatism required as both a necessary short-term counterpunch and a longer-term restorative vehicle at this late hour of our ailing republic is a more robust, muscular, and fundamentally masculine species of the broader conservative genus, national conservatism. So he's saying the original conservatism of America is national conservatism. I would say he's entirely incorrect. And not just that, uh, we don't have a republic. You see, he's looking at everything as a singular republic, without really understanding what the United States was at the founding, and how the founding generation in general conceived of the United States, excluding some of the nationalists that he will cherry-pick to say this is what American conservatism was. And common good originalism, a peculiar focus of Holmes's intense ire, should be viewed in context as the jurisprudential component of the broader national conservatism project. That project, and common good originalism in particular, merits defense against Holmes' attacks. So, uh, he's kind of repetitive there. But anyways, Holmes's reading of founding-era America history is tendacious, to say the least. In his essay, he accuses national conservatives of retconning American history to suit our nefarious purposes. Well, they are in some ways. He seems to question the notion that the pursuit of a genuinely common good, existing above and beyond the securing of negative liberty, or the mere aggregation of individual preferences might have had any salience with the founding generation. His absolutist, enlightenment, liberal interpretation of the founding, furthermore, leads him implausibly to condemn the idea that, quote, the unique experiences of history, culture, and customs of a nation remain or even ever were relevant or meaningful in American political thought. Now, I would agree with Hammer here that we have a situation where culture matters. Culture does matter, okay? Culture mattered in 1776, culture mattered in 1787, culture mattered in 1801, culture mattered in 1850, it mattered in 1860 and 61. it mattered in 1820, it mattered, it mattered into the late 19th and early 20th century. Culture matters. What the important part that Hammer and all of these nationalists miss is that there are many different cultures in America. It's not, that's not enlightened liberalism, that's Realists, that's understanding what America actually was, a federal republic. The first thing they wanted to do was secure liberty, secure independence to protect the rights of Englishmen. But also, they recognized that there were regional cultures in America. This is when Governor Morris stands up and says, look, in Philadelphia, if we've got all these differences, as everyone says, let's stop right now. Because this union is never going to work. Now, no one did it, but even when you read the Philadelphia Convention, you see the differences there. And it wasn't just slavery. They talked about that. But it was on all kinds of things. There were regional differences in how these people thought about central power. And what they didn't want was Massachusetts governing South Carolina or Connecticut governing South Carolina or vice versa. They didn't want Virginia governing New York. That wasn't what they wanted. Now, certainly there were nationalists there. There are absolutely nationalists in the Philadelphia Convention. But you know what? They lost. That's the important understanding to all of this. The defense of the Constitution when it went to the states in 1787 and 1788 was a federal or confederal or, more importantly, federal-republican defense of the document. That is originalism, not something that he's making up here. You see, all of these things would go away. Hammer could live and wherever he wants to live. He could pick his state and he could go live there and live in a much more acceptable uh, situation than if he lived in, say, California or New York. Who wants to live in those states if you're on the right any longer? Get out! Who wants to live in those places? Or we should be talking more about decentralization where we could have several states carved out of California. That should really happen. We should be looking at these kind of things, not just, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pummel our opponents from the top down because that works so well. That works so well. This is all born out of an intense desire to win, and I understand that. the right wants to win they've been abused they're not winning so how do you win well you don't just say you know what we're going to do gain control of the apparatus and we're going to punish the other side Ronald Reagan won in 1980 took office in 1981 and what happened the Straussians and neocons took over anytime the right gets in office that's what happened Donald Trump won in 2016 took office in 2017 and what happened the Straussians and neocons took over And so everything was gone from the beginning. He continues, This view of the founding has been repeatedly debunked. In a 2020 Claremont Review of Books review of the libertarian fundamentalist C. Bradley Thompson's 2019 book, America's Revolutionary Mind, Brian A. Smith, Law and Liberty's managing editor, delivered a powerful blow against those who depict America as a sort of monolithic Lockean thought experiment. Thompson's arguments closely mirror Holmes's own, and they are wrong. America was, of course, founded as a predominantly Christian nation, and Locke's specific role in founding area political thought can only be understood in that context. Now, this I would agree with Hammer on. Okay? The founding generation were more concerned about the ancient constitutions going back to the Magna Carta and the uh, traditions of England, than they were about some enlightened nonsense. And even those that were wrapped up in that, this is where John Taylor of Caroline is important, he says, look, yeah, some of us were, we we thought about these things, but you know what, we quickly got over it when we realized that was all stupid. Whereas Thompson asserts that Lockean influence made the American mind, we would do better to state that a largely Christian people adopted Locke's ideas without feeling compelled to do so in terms of Locke's system, Smith wrote in his CRB review. Thompson sees Locke everywhere, but fails to grasp that many colonists read the second treatise eclectically in a matter compatible with the conventional biblical story about the nature of government, Smith goes on. And there are many, of course, who were simply not exposed to or not not at all influenced by Locke's thought. This is true. More importantly, when you look at Locke, it's not about the Second Treatise necessarily. It's about the English Bill of Rights. That was more important than the Second Treatise because if you put this English Bill of Rights next to the Declaration, and you just want to say that is the document that uh, authored secession, allowed the, the, the colonies to break away from Great Britain, form the states. If you just look at that, They're very similar. They're an indictment of the king. This is where I'm always perplexed about people that say the Declaration was so revolutionary. This is Michael Anton and others. Look, it's a revolution! Well, the English Bill of Rights was also an indictment of the king. That was often called the Glorious Revolution. When you get that, because there's no bloodshed. But was it really that revolutionary, or was it simply reaffirming what the English people had been thinking for a long time. It was weakening the power of the executive. Here in America, they got rid of the king, but the establishment ruling class really didn't change a whole lot at all. And eventually they brought back an executive. So they weren't really changing anything. As for Holmes's notion that the history, culture, and customs of a nation are not indispensable for maintaining that nation, one need only consult John Jay's Federalist II, one of the seminal entries in the series. Quote, Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country to one united people, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same languages, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs, and who, by their joint consuls, arms, and efforts, fighting side by side throughout a long and bloody war, have nobly established general liberty and independence. Except, you know what? John Jay is full of it there. Because that wasn't true at all. It might be one of the seminal entries for... Josh Hammer, because this is what he wants to believe. But if you look at the entire aggregate of the documents that were produced in this period, John Jay's Federalist Number Two is way out there in what people were saying. This one people is stupid. Nobody thought that. Except for a few, a handful of nationalists like John Jay and James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton and John Marshall. But you go back and look at even in Hamilton's New York, even in Jay's New York, what was the dominant group? Well, people that didn't think this at all. The Constitution was only ratified by three votes in New York. Three votes. And Hamilton was always outvoted in the Philadelphia Convention. In fact, he packed up his bags and went home because he couldn't get his way. It's not what he said. I have business to attend to. No, no, no. He was losing all the time, so why stick around? He gave a very nationalist speech in June of 1787. Nobody, nobody wanted what he, what he said. They rejected it. Jay, one of the most profoundly conservative founders echoed here Edmunds Burke's famous conception of a people as a partnership of generations dead, living, and yet unborn. Indeed, for an entire swath of notable founders, among them not merely Jay, but also George Washington, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton, the U.S. Constitution of 1787 is readily understood as intellectually downstream from his conservative English constitution forebear, rather than as a radical rationalist break from the past. Well, this is true. The founding was conservative. It wasn't wasn't leftist. I mean, this is Emmy Bradford, okay? But you also have to understand within that, Within that, you had people like John Dickinson, who was also conservative. He said, look, experience must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. You also had Roger Sherman from Connecticut. You also had John Randolph. I'm sorry, uh, 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 John Rutledge, excuse me. John Rutledge, and Randolph too, but Edmund Randolph. John Rutledge of South Carolina. All of those three people, Dickinson, Sherman, and Rutledge, all, all, were Federalists in the truest sense of the word, meaning they believed in a federal republic, not a national government. In fact, the Constitution was never sold on national terms. That is the issue here that I have with Josh Hammer. Homestech's issue with the idea that individual liberty might have been anything other than the preeminent and immediate, perhaps even exclusive, object of the founder's affections. He is again mistaken. James Madison, a moderate liberal himself, pronounced in Federalist 51, justice is the end of government, it is the end of civil society. Okay, look, all of this is true. What Josh Hammer is saying is true, but where would this power be best contained? Well, within the states. Because the states represented the people of those areas and the cultures and customs and traditions and precedents in those areas. That is the important thing to get out of originalism. They weren't utopian ideologues, uh, leftist ideologues, they did believe in state power. The libertarians are wrong that the founders didn't believe in state power. They did. Even Jefferson did. They all believed in state power to an extent in some way. But they, when you said state, it meant the state of Virginia or the state of Massachusetts or the state of Pennsylvania. That's where they believed in the most power. The central authority was not to have that kind of power over the individual states. He added, "...in language yet again derived from the language of government, ends of an Aristotelian theology in Federalist 57, the aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society." It's no accident that the Constitution's preamble, which we can understand as an emphatic theological statement and a pronounced ratio legis, reason of the law, enumerates these substantive government ends of establishing justice and promoting the general welfare before it asserts the end of securing the blessings of liberty. So, the preamble means nothing. Even Madison said that. This is what... Um, it's, it's setting up the Constitution. But it has no power, no weight... And they didn't believe in substantive due process. They didn't believe this is substantive government. You you do things to prevent. The founding generation was also fully comfortable with robust inheritance of the common law of defamation. A culture of free speech much more pragmatic than dogmatic. The criminalization of blasphemy and the legal prescription of all sorts of hedonistic debauchery. This is all true. They were perfectly comfortable circumscribing idiosyncratic notions of individual liberty, especially when that liberty veered into libertinism. They would have readily in, in, uh, in, uh, intu, uh, intu, intu, intuited Aristotle's ad, admonition that a state exists for the sake of a good life and not for the sake of life only. Washington himself presciently warned in 1783 that arbitrary power is most essentially established on the ruins of liberty abused to licentiousness. Public religiosity and public Christianity in particular were the norm. The First Amendment's establishment clause is meant to be but a mere federalist provision. The American founding was emphatically not libertarian liberalism. Now, the establishment clause was there, when he says a mere federalist provision... I'm not understanding what exactly he means by that. Of course, this was intended to prevent a church of the United States. They certainly intended Americans to be generally Christian. They understood this. But um, there was going to be no state-sponsored religion. It wasn't going to exist. The Bill of Rights only applied to the central authority. That's one thing he's missing entirely in that. The Bill of Rights was not intended to apply to the states. All of these things he said is true, but again, the states had to handle this stuff. The, the teleology of the, of the preamble and the intellectually heterodox melting pot that was the American founding more generally, thus militates in favor of a more intellectually nuanced approach to the art of politics than that, than that which libertarians or enlightened liberals may favor. Consider again the common good whose discernment and pursuit was from Madison the aim of every political constitution. The acts of discernment and pursuant uh, pursuit here are necessarily in, entail what modern lawyers might deem a multi factor balancing test of sorts. As Anderson wrote in First Things last year after Amazon banned his book on transgenderism, the common good is multifaceted. Promoting liberty as the highest good, libertarianism, improperly downplays other important facets. We want laws that take into account all the relevant factors. What we want is government from the bottom up. If you want to have this kind of leftist utopian society and take your pick state or community, go for it. But what is missing here is that places that don't want to do that, the founders would have been fine with that too. They wouldn't have used the center to do any of this, to do one or the other. That is what Josh Hammer is missing. Common good originalism, as I have formulated, asserts that Madison's aim of every political constitution the common good itself ought to guide legal and judicial expositors. Those expositors, in other words, ought to reject the siren song of purely historicist legal positivism and instead put an unapologetic interpretive thumb on the scale on the side of the telos of the American regime. The central claim of common good originalism is that substantive justice in the common good, such as the statesmanship of President Abraham Lincoln and Chief Justice John Marshall's Nationalist Necessary and Proper Clause Jurisprudence in 1819's McCulloch v. Maryland, better represent the American Constitutional Order's telos than do rote appeals to proceduralism and libertine-inspired uh, relativism. Such as Stephen Douglas's hollow pleas for popular sovereignty and the mystery passage of 1992's Planned Parenthood, B. Casey. Now, let me stop there. What Hammer, I don't think, realizes is that John Marshall's Nationalist Necessary and Proper Clause, which, of course, was Hamilton's Necessary and Proper Clause, undermines his entire position. Because that's exactly what the left uses to get everything they want. Well, we know that there's nothing in the Constitution that says we can do this, so we're just going to do it. So what Hammer would say is we have to win control of the center. Well, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you, Josh Hammer? How's it working out that we control the center and that everything changes? It all becomes good. It doesn't work. Arguments against common good originalism tend to depict it as imprudent or ahistorical or otherwise rejected by means of rebutting common good originalism's underlying claim that Antonin scalia style positive originalism is morally empty. More recently, in an unsurprisingly erudite speech held unsurprisingly at the Heritage Foundation, Chief Judge William H. Pryor, Jr. of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the 11th Circuit condemned living common goodism, by which he appears to have meant an amalgamation of sorts of common good originalism, the Harvard Law School professor Adrian Vermeule's initial tribalizing proposal of common good constitutionalism, and the independent Better Originalism Manifesto co-written by me and three others for the Claremont Institute's American Mind Journal. So see, here are the Claremont with their tentacles and everything. It's just ridiculously stupid, too. Arguments against common good originalism tend to depict it as imprudent or ahistorical. He just said that. But in lumping together such distinctive strands of thought, the normally fastidious prior sloppily blurred lines, thus doing a disservice to the broader debate, common good originalism remains a strand of religious thought and at any level of judging would necessarily be more moderate than Vermeil's common good constitutionalism, which is... Uh, which is uh, wholly untethered to original meaning or original intent. Well, so is common good originalism because original meaning or original intent are not what Josh Hammer is saying here. You want original meaning or original intent? Go look at the ratification process. And I'm not just talking about John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. Go look at what actually won, the arguments that won. John Jay's arguments didn't win. What won with the Federalist? And what won in New York was Hamilton essentially rejecting that position. By three votes, by the way. That's what won. What won in all the other states was a rejection of this nationalism. We don't have a national government. Nah, it's not there. We didn't create a national government. That's not what we got. We got a federal republic. And a federal republic is allowed to absorb these type of differences. We don't have one size fits all. It's top-down centralized power. Let me skip down. He says it is important again to emphasize the connection between common good originalism and national conservatism, which is more willing to prudentially wield state power to pursue a substantive version of the good and which soberly resists the illusion of a values-neutral public square or values-neutral constitutional interpretive methodology. Well, what you would have is a central government with really no power at all over these things. Then you could have it and you could have whatever you want in Alabama or whatever you want in California. That would be the point. The real issue is Abraham Lincoln's distortion of America. If you're going to champion Abraham Lincoln, you're going to undermine your own position. That's what all these people need to figure out. When they all figure that out, then we can really get to somewhere. It is now obvious that even the Fortune 500 boardroom is the antithesis of values neutral, as the activist Christopher Rufo has done yeoman's work in helping to unveil. And concentrated woke corporate power is indeed now a greater threat to the American way of life than even concentrated government power, as Ashley Keller persuasively argued at the recent Federal Society National Lawyers Convention. I'm not saying this isn't true. But you know what states can do? States can limit corporate power. States could do all kinds of things if they were left unfettered by the central authority. <laughs> this is important. States could do all kinds of things to knock this down. The states themselves. And I would say that that's what the founders would say in all of this. You know what the Necessary and Proper Clause did? It allowed for the central government to charter corporations. It gave the central government a lot of power over corporations. The very thing that Josh Hammer thinks, this is good, we're going to have John Marshall out. John Marshall is the reason why we have all the leftist stupidity in America. Legally. You can't have conservatism if you're going to champion John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton and Abraham Lincoln. You can't. Because you know what you're going to do. Well, first of all, Lincoln wasn't even conservative. You know what you're going to do there? And Hamilton was marginally. And I know this pointed out, well, Russell Kirk, did, Russell Kirk didn't include any chapter on Hamilton. He did talk about Hamilton, but he didn't think he was good enough to be in the conservative mind. But he did include John Randolph of Roanoke and John C. Calhoun. Of course, Calhoun's position was that the states had to do a lot of things, and the same thing with Randolph. Common good originalism is far more neutral and suitable jurisprudential complement to the more muscular political economy and common good capitalism now required by the cratering of the post-war neoliberal order with its attendant harms. Those harms include the emboldening of our Chinese arch foe, the offshoring of millions of jobs, and shuttering of thousands of factories across the heartland, mass despondency and unprecedented drug overdose epidemic, and the engorgement of modern Silicon Valley robber barons, monopolists that now wield more control over our day-to-day lives and do all levels of government combined. Again, all this is true, but how do you stop that? Well, you don't do it from the center, you do it from the states. You know, if the states are still allowed to do things uh, some of that Silicon Valley stuff wouldn't even be going on because they blocked a lot of things. But, of course, under a nationalist interpretation of America and the Supreme Court being ascendant and everything else, well, we've gotten a bunch of nonsense. Judges interpreting the Constitution as well as political actors exercising their independent prerogatives to interpret the Constitution, much do so with this backdrop in mind. That's his entire problem. Judges interpreting the Constitution, as well as political actors, exercise their independent prerogatives to interpret the Constitution must do so with this backdrop in mind. Which judges? The telos of the American regime, characterized by substantive justice and the common good, is ill-served at a time like this by a political economy of absolutist laissez-faire capitalism for which Scalia-style positive originalism with its whiff of Jeffersonian strict constructionism as a natural government minimizing interpretive corollary. It's whiff. Well, how about a full dose of Jeffersonian strict constructionism? How about a full dose of it? Because it wasn't really Jeffersonian. We, we point to Jefferson. This was original intent. That's what it was supposed to be. But the common good capitalism now needed to tame neoliberal excess and reconsolidate a fractured citizenry can only be served by a less rigid jurisprudential garment that can empower the state to act decisively when need be against neoliberal extravagance and in support of the common good. That garment is the nationalist, overtly common good-oriented jurisprudence of Hamilton, Marshall, and Lincoln. Common good original. Out of those three, none would be considered originalist when it comes to how they interpreted the Constitution after they had some power. None. That's not originalism. That's a distortion of it. And if you're going to say that, then you're, you're, just, you're just giving the game to the left. Josh Hammer is giving the game to the left. Here you go. Take it. So, I wanted to cover this because it is an important piece and something that's interesting, I think. Um, you can't win champion Marshall and Lincoln and Hamilton. You just can't win. That's why I wrote a whole book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Half the book is dedicated to the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court took Hamilton's on the left, took Hamilton and ran with it and created this massive problem in American society. So that's my position. Josh Hamer doesn't even know what originalism is. He's confused about it. I think that we have to return to what that actually means, which is the understanding of America as a federal republic. Yes, the state can have powers to do things. Yes. The founding generation believed that. I think to say that they didn't is incorrect. They weren't stateless utopians. On the other hand, which level of government, which it was the state level. So that's the important part of this that we have to take away. Okay. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian mcLean of I'll see you, next, uh, see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.